Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We will be looking at two verses today. Verse 6 and verse 7. And the word of the Lord reads, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father, holy and righteous, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, sovereign Lord, we now come to you through the precious blood and righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father God, as this text, as your word deals with anxiety, this is a huge giant that must be slain. Father, I'm about to preach on anxiety and my mind is everywhere. It's anxious about the sermon. Help me, Lord. And I pray that anyone who walked in this place with a mind filled with anxieties, fears, worries, I pray that you would bring peace. A peace, as our text says, that surpasses all understanding. And you will guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. And for those of us in here who are not Christians, who this promise does not pertain to, Indeed, they should be anxious. Anxious because they're under the wrath of God. I pray that you'll awake them to that. You would awake them. And that you would give them the first peace that they need. Peace with God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. To be reconciled and brought back into a right relationship with God. So now would you help your weak, your feeble servant and help all those who hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the, the meaning of this text is pretty obvious. We see this text here, it deals with anxiety. Now at, as we observe this text, we see that the opposite of anxiety, being anxious, is peace. We see in verse 6, it says, Be anxious for nothing. In verse 7, And the peace of God. So the opposite of anxiety is peace, which, Lord willing, we'll see is even more explicit in the Greek, in the original language. Anxiety is a huge issue. There's so many things to be anxious about. The leadership of our country. Where is our country going? The economy. What's going to happen? It could be in our marriages. Something personal no one knows about but you. But I can guarantee every single person in here can give you a list of things that cause them anxiety to some degree. Anxiety is a huge issue. But as I said, the opposite of anxiety is peace. In Mark chapter 4, 
there's a situation where Jesus, after he, he gives his parables, he goes on a ship, on a boat. He's with his disciples. And then it says, suddenly, a great windstorm arose. And the waves were beating against the boat. And the boat was already filling. Now the boats then were nothing like the ships we have today. So what is Jesus doing? He is asleep on a pillow. How can he have peace when his life is in jeopardy as a war? So the disciples, they, they run to Jesus. They're like, Master, don't you care that we are perishing? Jesus arises and he speaks and he brings calm to the winds and the waves. You know, many times we're like the disciples. You know, things are going on in our lives and we we run to Jesus in prayer. Don't you care what's happening to me? Now, indeed, he does have the power to speak and bring a calm. But, Lord willing, as we'll see in this text today, that isn't always how he functions. Because, see, if our peace is always tied to our circumstance, your peace is going to go up and down. You'll be anxious today. You'll have peace tomorrow. That's right. So, our peace has to be connected to something more than what's going on out there. Even when it's affecting us. I mean, think of it. Jesus is in the boat. He's probably getting wet. Yet he's at perfect peace. How can this be? Well, Lord willing, we'll see that in our text today. So I want to look at three, make three observations from this. First of all, I want to look at the command for peace. Second of all, the pathway to peace. And last of all, the God of peace. So the command for peace. He says, be anxious for nothing. This is an imperative. It is a command. So what that means is to have an anxious mind, it's not just sinful, it's actually disobedient. So how are we to obey this? Lord willing, we'll get there in a second. But let's just examine this word anxious, anxiety. What does it mean? Merim nao in the Greek. It literally means to be pulled apart in different directions, to be divided. Does that describe your mind this morning? Whatever the situation is in your life, it may be money, it may be spiritually, it may be in your marriage. Whatever that situation is that has your mind going in every direction, That's anxiety. And we're commanded, be anxious for nothing. Now, it's it's pretty obvious in the English. Be anxious for nothing. But I I want to examine that word nothing in the Greek. So, Paul had two options here. He could use the word uden or maiden. Both of them mean nothing. The prefix u, the prefix may. So why does he choose maiden other than uden? Well, u is an objective negation. May is subjective, which not only rules out the thing, but every implication and suggestion that could have anything to do with it. So Paul is telling us here, that we are not to have anything that would even suggest a mind that is divided 
that is pulled apart. Just to give you an example, children, let's say, um, let's say your mother, she was in the kitchen cooking dinner, and she comes to you, and she says, you know, I, I forgot an in- ingredient, and she's going to run this to the store to get that. She says, while I'm gone, make sure you do not go into the kitchen and eat anything. And she uses udin. Well, then you could say, okay, well, she just said, I can't go into the kitchen and eat. So your mom comes home. She finds you eating a bag of chips. She's like, what are you doing? I told you not to go into the kitchen and eat anything. You say, I got this out of my closet. But if she would have said, don't go into the kitchen and eat anything, maiden. She says, don't have anything to do, any implication, any suggestion of eating before I get back. It's very clear. That's what Paul is saying here. He is saying, look, anything in your life, Anything, doesn't matter if you think it's big, doesn't matter if you think it's small, if it can cause you to have a mind that is no longer focused on Christ and is pulled apart in different directions, should I do this, should I do this, What money's not adding up, this, whatever it is, we should have nothing to do with that, not even a suggestion of that. So how do we keep this command? Well, second of all, the pathway to peace. He says, but. So be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Everything. Again, it's clear in the English. But in the Greek, this word, the definition of this word, panti, it means Each and every part that applies to the whole with a focus on the parts rather than the whole picture. In other words, you probably have heard, you know, don't miss the forest by looking at the trees. Well, this word is speaking of looking at the forest through the lens of every leaf, of every blade of grass, of every speck of dirt. Of every insect, every part that applies. So we're to be anxious for nothing in everything, every part that applies. Anything that can cause us even to have a mind that would suggest being pulled apart and divided. Suggest anxiety. Through all of those things, through prayer and supplication. Prayer, prosuke, literally means a wish made known. A wish made known toward God. Supplication, the ace, it means a, a cry arising from an urgent need. So in all our prayers, in all our supplications, we should pray about, as it says, everything. We should bring everything before God. In Isaiah chapter 37, there's a situation. King Hezekiah, king of Judah, he has the king of Assyria. He sends one of his people. His name is, uh, the king's name is Sennacherib. And he is threatening to just destroy the kingdom of Judah. Now, he's boasting. He said, I've defeated this nation and this nation and this nation, this king, this king, these gods. What is your God going to do to me? So, King Hezekiah, what does he do? Does he say, oh man, what are we going to do? We, we got to go. I got, we got to make our plans. I got to get my army. And his mind isn't divided. It's not an anxious mind that we see. What does he do? He goes before the Lord in prayer and supplication. It may be something like that in your life today. It may be something you're like, I've seen this. 
This has destroyed this person and this person and this person, and now it's come to me. Take it before the Lord. Or it may be something you may be like, well, it's not that big deal. I mean, God doesn't care about this, does he? Well, in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's another situation. So there's an Israelite, and this Israelite goes out to expand on his land. He borrows an axe, and as he is working, the axe head flies off and goes into the water. So he cries out, and the Lord sends a prophet, and he makes the axe head Float. So we retrieve it. So maybe it's not Sennacherib in your life. Maybe it doesn't, it isn't something you think God would even be concerned about. But listen, if it can have or make you have a mind that is pulled apart and not united on Jesus Christ. I don't care what it is, take it before the Lord. For an axe head, he reversed the laws of nature, if you want to look at it that way. God does care. He does care. So, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. So what's he saying here? Because many times we get the prayer and supplication. Oh, in everything, we make our prayers. We make our wishes known toward God. We make our supplications. We cry out because we are in need. We're pretty good at that. Now we have a need, we go to God. But this part, I fear It's left out many times. All of our prayers, all of our wishes, all of our supplications, our requests, our urgent needs are to be with thanksgiving. All of them are with thanksgiving. There's something interesting about this word. It's eucharistia in the Greek. Does anyone know the Greek word for grace? Charis. Now, the prefix you means good. This word literally describes a proclamation of the good grace of God. So in everything, no matter what goes on in our lives, rather it's a nacarib, rather it's an axe head, we're to pray, make our supplications known with thanksgiving. Praising God for his good grace towards us in it. So, the question is, why should we give thanksgiving? I mean, why should, think of Hezekiah. Should he give thanks for Sennacherib? Or the axe head, should he give thanks for losing the axe head? Why should we give thanks in all things? Well, the Philippian church, who Paul's writing to, is a persecuted church. If you turn back to chapter 1, we can see that. The the last few verses of chapter 1, starting in verse 27, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast, and one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition or destruction, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted. So it's a gift. It's a grace. It has been granted 
on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict, what you saw in me and now here is in me. So how could the Philippians give thanks their suffering persecution? Well, as we saw, he said to you, it's a sign of salvation and that from God. And to them, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. This is a grace, the good grace of God given to them. I don't know what you're going through, but can you see the good grace of God in it? Some of you, probably many of you, can quote Romans 8, 28. For we know that God works all things together for good, the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But I fear that verse is misunderstood many a times. And it's misunderstood because we divorce it from verse 29. But verse 29 begins with a four. It's a connecting word. See, we often understand that verse. Say, God takes everything bad in my life and he turns it for good. Is that true? There's even a song about that. You took what the enemy meant for evil and you turned it for good. Well, there's some truth about that. But is that what this verse says? Well, verse 29 says, For or because those he has foreknown, that's an eternity past. He's also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those he has predestined, these he also called. Those he called, these he also justified or declared righteous. Those he justified, these he also glorified. So what is this verse saying? It is saying from eternity past, before the world was created, when God foreknew you, it is then that he worked everything for your good in your life. Everything is for your good. Do you understand that, Christian? Brother, sister, absolutely everything. The Sennacheribs of your life, they're for your good. Your salvation, your glorification, and it's working that direction. The axe heads, they're for your good. For your sanctification, make you like Christ. There are so many things in our life. We say, if, if I have my choice, I'll remove this from my life. What if that's the very thing that's going to, in a sense, guarantee your salvation? What if you take out that part? I mean, just think, if you have a chain, if you take out one little link in the middle of that chain, the chain's no good. Maybe that one little link in your life you want to take out, like that thorn in the flesh of Paul. I prayed three times, remove this, only to find out it's that very thorn that's keeping him humble. So, should he give thanks for the... Th yes, he should give thanks. So I don't know what's going on in, in your life. But you can be thankful for the good grace of God if indeed you love him and are called according to his purpose. But who is Paul to command us to be anxious for nothing, to command us in everything? All our prayers and supplications, they're to be with thanksgiving. Who is Paul? I mean, you may have been, maybe you are now in the situation. And you're like, man, I, I just can't do I need someone to talk to. So you go to a brother, to a sister. And you're like, certainly they will help me. And they look at you and they say, be anxious for nothing. Now, you know, as a Christian, you're like, well, that's the word of God. I can't say anything about it. Okay, be anxious for that. Thank you. But you know inside you're like, who are you? You don't know what I'm going through. If you were in this situation, you would not be saying that. 
So who is Paul to be saying this to the Philippians? Well, as we saw in the last verse of chapter 1, it says, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So how can Paul give the Philippians this command? I mean, it's the word of God. So rather or not, he had this experience. They should receive it and we should receive it. But Paul was, or they were experiencing the same conflict as Paul. Let's just go back to chapter one. Let's examine that. So how could Paul come to these people and say, Be anxious for nothing. Give them this command. Give thanks in everything. All your prayers, all your supplications, give thanks. Well, how did Paul look at his situations? Three things. First of all, Paul could embrace his imprisonment because the gospel was being furthered. Verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of my brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So here's Paul in prison. Now, their prisons aren't anything like they are today. They're thrown in a hole in the ground. They didn't get food. They didn't get water. They didn't get showers. They were unsanitary. Probably animals crawling around, rats. People in there with all sorts of diseases. Is Paul's mind everywhere? God, why did you let this happen to me? Like the disciples, Master, don't you care that I'm perishing in here? But where was Paul's mind? He could embrace it. Because it was like, you know what? The gospel is being further. The whole palace guard, all the rest know my chains are in Christ. It's like my brethren. Now that I'm gone, they're speaking the word of God without fear. His mind isn't pulled apart. His mind is united on Christ. Why? Because it's not focused on himself. It's on Christ. Secondly, he could rejoice in pretensive preachers because Christ was being proclaimed. Now, what do I mean when I say pretensive preacher? What is pretensive? Pretense is the word. Well, Simply put, a pretense is a cover-up. You're, you're putting a mask. You're, you're doing something, but that's not what's really going on. So there's these preachers now that they see Paul has been put in prison. They take advantage of this. They probably aren't even Christians. And they're going out and preaching Christ. How does Paul respond? Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is is preached, and in this, I rejoice. Wait, Paul, these people are trying to add affliction to your chains. It's bad enough you're in prison. Now these these Jews or whoever they are, they're taking advantage because they envy you. They want to strive against you. They're taking advantage. Paul's out the way. Okay, we're going to go. We're going to preach Christ. Surely, Paul, your mind's going to be everywhere. No. It's like, I rejoice. Christ is being proclaimed. Again, a mind on Christ. Thirdly, Paul 
could be glad and rejoice even in the uncertainty of life and death because Christ would be magnified. Verse 19. For I know that this, or let me back up just a second because it really starts in verse 18. He says, yes, and will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul, you're thrown in, crit, uh, in prison. Well, I can embrace that. Why? Christ. Well, Paul, these preachers are coming. They're taking advantage because they envy you. You're out of the way. They're going to take advantage of this. Paul, Christ. Well, Paul, you don't even know if you're going to live or if you're going to die. Christ. Christian, brother, sister, set your mind on Christ. But, however, this word anxious, in the Bible, mostly, yes, it's used in a negative way. But it, it's actually also used in a positive light. I'll give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, maybe many of you know. He says, the man who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord. That's anxious. He says the unmarried woman is concerned or anxious about being holy in body and in spirit. So, should we be anxious for absolutely nothing in the negative sense? Yes, of course. But there is something our mind should be anxious or concerned about. And we see that modeled here in Paul as well. Verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. What, but what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith and that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. You're like Paul. That sounds like a mind that's pulled in different directions. Well, maybe at first. But really, it's the same mind we've been seeing, a mind on Christ. It's like, well, let me think. Do I want Christ? Do I want more Christ? Or do I want Christ for you? Christ, Christ, or Christ? I choose Christ. Listen, Christian. You want to be anxious about something? You want to have a mind that is going, should, should I do this? Should I do this? Let it be a mind on Christ. Doing the will of Christ. Sharing the gospel as we see here. He's like, look, if I die, I'll go and be with Christ. That's far better. I get more Christ. But guess what? If I'm gone... What about these people? So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay so I can help these people progress in Christ. And then when we all die, we'll get more Christ. So in the end, everyone gets more Christ. Let's be anxious about that. Are you anxious about the things of Christ? We should. Matter of fact, this is a mark of a Christian. We can examine ourselves about this. Do we even care about the things of Christ? Because Jesus Christ, he, in this positive sense, is anxious for his people. 
He's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. But let's go back to chapter 4. So we see the command for peace. We've seen the pathway to peace. Now let's look at the God of peace. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. As I said, it's even more explicit in the Greek. That peace is the opposite of anxiety. So we saw anxious, merimnao, means to be pulled apart in different directions to be divided. This word peace, irene, it literally means for all the pieces to be brought back together in the wholeness and harmony that result from no longer being divided. And notice, it is the peace of God. We can say a lot about that. But at least we can see this. There is no peace apart from God. Twice Isaiah says, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. False prophets in the Old Testament, they're notorious for this. They're preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace. The people are living in their sin. Oh, God's going to prosper you. You don't have to worry about that judgment Jeremiah is speaking about. Ezekiel, he doesn't know what he's talking about. There's going to be peace. There was no peace. Listen, as I mentioned earlier, this promise is only for the Christian. Only for the Christian. If you're not in Christ this morning, you may have a false sense of peace, but it, there is no peace for you. None at all. You know, if, let's say, there was a man on the other side of that wall, that man had a gun. And his intention was to come in here. If we don't know he's out there, we can be at peace. But what happens when we're alerted of the reality? So if you're not in Christ this morning, if you haven't forsaken all for Christ this morning, and doing that now, how can you be at peace? It's because you don't know of the reality. See, God is a righteous judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. And if he will not turn back, not turn back to God through Jesus Christ, it says he has his sword sharpened. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He prepares his instruments of death and makes his arrows fiery shafts. You're an enemy of God. God is an enemy of you. And he has his whole artillery, as it were, aimed at you. You're just ignorant of that. I pray that the Lord would awaken you to that. Be anxious about that. And the only way to flee from that anxiety is to flee to Christ. Flee to Christ this morning. But I trust many in here have done that. So it says, the peace of God, the wholeness that results from all the pieces being brought back together in harmony. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, it's in the human peace. It's a peace that comes from an infinite God. It says it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This word guard, furese, it literally means to do all the offensive and defensive things necessary to successfully guard something. Just to stand around it on every side so that nothing can get in from any side they attack. 
On the defense, on the offensive, whatever is necessary. That's what this word means. And notice, the peace of God is what is doing the garden. You know, we can, we can try to guard many things. We can have people. I mean, think of the soldiers that guarded the tomb of Jesus. You think they just got any soldiers. They probably got the best ones that they had. They wanted to make sure that tomb would be guarded. Yet they failed. Even if they were the best guards this world has ever known, they were nothing for our God, for Jesus Christ. When Adam was kicked out of the garden, the tree of life was guarded by a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard every way that no one got to that tree of life. Do you want the peace of God to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus? As we sing, There is a pathway to that in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Now, with the little time we have left, I would like to mention four things from the book of Philippians. Four pillars or guard posts that can guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, after I go through these, you may be like, well, you didn't speak of my situation. Well, if you are listening, we dealt with every situation already. Because in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, give thanks for the good grace of God. Yes, this hurts, but God. I thank you because you have ordained this for my good to conform me to the image of Christ for my ultimate glorification with him. That covers everything. But I want to just speak on four specific things. One from each chapter. You know, perhaps you're in here this morning. And what causes you anxiety is that you just don't know If you can make it to the end. You know all the scripture. It's he who endures to the end that will be saved. You know his soul takes no pleasure in him who draws back. You know the scriptures. If you have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers with the Holy Spirit. Tasted the powers of the ages to come, the good word of God, and you fall away. It's impossible to restore you to repentance. That terrifies you. Your mind is everywhere. If you've come to the knowledge of the truth, sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's good to you if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And these things cause you anxiety. Your mind is everywhere. What would Paul say to you? Chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is the one who is keeping you. He's keeping you. The God of all power. And Job Chapter 26, Job speaks of God. He says, he stretched out the north over empty space. He hangs the world on nothing. He binds up the waters in the thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He hides the face of his throne, puts his thick cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. By his power, he stirs up the seas. His understanding breaks up the storm. His spirit adorned the heavens. His hand pierces the fleeing serpent. Then he says, 
These are the mere edges of his ways. And what small whisper do we hear of him? But the thundering of his power, who can understand? You are kept in the hands of the all-powerful God. He will not fail. You can fail. He will not fail. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or perhaps you're in here this morning. And you're not necessarily worried about the future. It's right, right here and right now. Like, man, I'm struggling with my sin, my anxieties. It's like I make one step forward, ten steps back, two steps forward, twenty steps back. I'm trying to work out my salvation, but it's just too much. Well, what would Paul say to you? Chapter 2. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're like, Paul, come on. I'm trying to do that. Don't you see my struggle? I mean, you're an apostle. I can understand. You have it easy, Paul. But you're not like me. I'm just a regular old person. I'm a sinner. You're... I'm nothing compared to you. This salvation is too much. But he doesn't stop there. He says, for or because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Again, who's the one that is really doing the work? It is God. But. Are you trying to work out your salvation out of your own strength? Or are you working out your salvation based off God's strength? You're like, well, I mean, how do I, how do, I do it in the power of God? Well, we could say a lot about that, but it all comes down to two things. Unceasing prayer. We've seen in this text, in everything through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, and biblical meditation. Meditating on the word day and night, the word of God in prayer. These are what God has provided to do it in his strength. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Have you ever noticed that the whole armor of God is really two things? It's the word of God and prayer. Gird yourself with the belt of truth. What is that? The word of God. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Where do we learn righteousness? The word of God. Feet shot with the gospel. The word of God. Shield of faith. Believing the word of God. Helmet of salvation. Our hope of salvation is found in the word of God. Sword of the spirit. The word of God. With all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Word of God in prayer. How am I strong in the Lord and the power of his might? Be in your word in prayer. I fear that oftentimes we as Christians, we neglect that. You know, if I can use my daughter for an example. You know, there are, there are times I, I say, hey, you need to eat breakfast because we're going to go. You're not going to be able to eat then. She says, I don't want to eat. Then we go, Dad, I'm hungry. I told you to eat. How many times do we do the same thing? How many times do I do the same thing? When I'm supposed to eat, feed on the word of God. I don't. And then I'm going to complain that I'm hungry, that I'm, I'm, I'm failing, I'm falling into sin. Well, are you eating? Or perhaps what's causing you anxiety this morning is that you just you feel filthy. You feel dirty. It's the same old sin you're falling into. Maybe you've committed that thing you thought you never would. Like Peter, you're like, if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. And you do it three times. You feel filthy. You're like, I can't come before God. I know I'm supposed to confess my sins. But God, you don't want to see me. Maybe that's causing you anxiety this morning. What does Paul say to you? Well, he says, as Christians, who count all things lost for Christ, who suffer the loss of all things and count them as garbage, as dung, as refuse for Christ. He says, 
you are found in him, not having a righteousness of your own, which is by the law, but that which is by faith in Christ, a righteousness from God by faith. Christian, I don't care what you have done. God has provided a righteousness through his son. You have a perfect righteousness. The psalm my brother read this morning was perfect. It's when David is rejoicing. This is after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And he's rejoicing. It's like, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord doesn't impute sin. He doesn't put sin on your account. Indeed, if you count all things lost for Christ, sin is not on your account. I mean, have you ever thought of this? No, I want to be careful how I say this. Don't misunderstand me. But when David was in bed with Bathsheba and plotting Uriah's murder, he was as righteous in his standing, not not in his works, in his standing before God. He was as righteous in those times as he was when he was writing the 23rd Psalm. So Christian. We can come boldly before God. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Or perhaps what's causing you anxiety isn't necessary any of those things. You're like, it's just day to day. I'm, I'm looking at my bank account. The money's not there. My saving is dwindling. You're like, all these expenses are popping up left and right. I mean, money's going out faster than it's coming in. I mean, my knees, you're like in Matthew, what am I to eat? What am I to drink? What am I to wear? What would Paul say to you? He says, and my God will supply your every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So brother, sister, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Father God. Oh, how I thank you for your word. What would we do without it? We can do nothing without hearing from you. What are we to believe if we don't believe your word? Father, I pray for any of my brethren in here who are dealing with anxieties, maybe with the spiritual things or physical, practical things. Oh, might the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Father, Let your word run swiftly and be glorified in it if anyone is not in Christ. May they flee from the wrath of God and be made at peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.